Hey there, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of The Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week we explore the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode is the deepest dive that I've done into the world of regenerative agriculture. You'll probably be able to hear it in my voice in the interview here, but this one had me on the edge of my seat pretty much the entire time. In fact, I think the conversation just gets more and more interesting the deeper we get into it. If you're new to the concept of regenerative agriculture, some previous episodes in which we discuss the concepts are episodes 44, 64, 109, 135, 182, and 199. Sorry, more of them there than I expected, but we'll link them in the show notes if you're interested. My viewpoint on regenerative agriculture since I was first introduced to the concept a few years ago is probably somewhere in between cautious optimism and maybe even a hint of skepticism. I'm certainly not skeptical about the importance of soil health. I think You've heard that from me in a lot of episodes of this show, and you certainly have if you listen to Soil Sense, which is one of the other podcasts that I host. But some of the what I'll call hype associated with regenerative ag have me left asking a lot of questions. Many of those questions we get into on today's episode. I'm talking about questions like, where is the line between what is regenerative and what is not regenerative? And what is really motivating regenerative farmers and ranchers to pursue these ideals? Because it's probably not what we see in the media or from many outspoken advocates out there. And also, we get into some of the scientific questions, like what is technically happening when carbon is sequestered in the soil? And once it's sequestered, how do we know it's going to stay there and for how long? Now, I couldn't be more impressed with the guest we have on the show today to talk about these issues. Paige Stanley is a finishing PhD candidate at UC Berkeley who works at the intersection of rangeland ecology and soil science. Born in Detroit, she grew up in rural Georgia. Uh, While as an undergraduate at a liberal arts college, she took a course on the ethics of food production, which drove her to want to talk to more farmers and ranchers and ultimately pursue a master's in animal science. She did so at Michigan State University studying under Jason Roundtree. Now, that master's program furthered her interest in soil carbon sequestration in grazing lands, how it might reduce greenhouse gas emissions and provide ecosystem services, improve animal welfare, and perhaps improve rural livelihoods. That led her to her work she's doing today there at UC Berkeley, and I'm going to let her describe that to you. But but first, a real quick definition. You'll hear regenerative grazing called AMP grazing in this episode, and that stands for adaptive multipaddock grazing. You may have heard it called in the past mob grazing. Essentially, this is just controlled and intensive grazing that is rotated across sections or paddocks of a field. Uh, For more on that, you can go back to episodes 44 or 64 of this podcast. Okay, with that out of the way, here is Paige Stanley describing her work with regenerative ranchers in California. When I came out of my master's, uh, I had just published a paper looking at something called a life cycle assessment. So we use life cycle assessment to account for all of the greenhouse gases in a production system. So as applied to beef production, we tend to model greenhouse gases arising from things like enteric fermentation and uh, manure management and feed production that all feed into us uh, trying to produce beef in different systems. 
So I had done that and compared AMP grazing to feedlot finishing, but then had also included some soil carbon measurements that we had been taking at that same farm. And I was pretty intrigued by the soil results that we had gotten because up until that point, lots of papers had talked about the implications for improved grazing on soils and it might sequester carbon and it might do this to greenhouse gas emissions, but nobody had actually really done much legwork on the soils. Uh, There had been lots of modeling papers and like maybe one or two papers showing carbon sequestration. Those numbers had been used in other papers, but it wasn't a real ground truthing up until that point. So in an attempt to better understand the impact of AMP grazing on soil carbon and whether or not that might be a legitimate greenhouse gas mitigation strategy, I decided to focus more on the soil side, whereas before I was kind of trying to rope in soils with greenhouse gases and animal production, which I still am doing to an extent. But in the project that I'm doing now, I've essentially compiled over three years all of the ranchers I could find in California that were using AMP grazing. AMP grazing, you know, it goes by other names like holistic plan grazing and holistic management, and it is pretty contentious in California. So for that reason, I think people have just assumed that it wouldn't work in a semi-arid Mediterranean climate. So no studies have been done on it, to my knowledge. And I was surprised by that. But I also knew of people that were using that type of grazing. So I set out to find those ranchers and decided on a space for time comparison study, which means that rather than going to the same ranch and collecting soil carbon data over time, I went to a bunch of ranches and found one ranch that was using AMP grazing side by side to a ranch that was using more business as usual, kind of season long or very low rotation type grazing. And I collected soil carbon data at the same time. And I did that on several ranch pairs throughout the state. And so then you get a relative idea of what's happening as far as soil carbon goes related to the different types of grazing management. So that's what I did from March to June. I was out on ranches all over California collecting 1,500 data points on soil carbon on top of vegetation data. And right now I'm in the lab trying to process it. And in the end, I will have data to show whether or not AMP grazing is useful in California as a method of soil carbon sequestration. And then what might be the drivers of that, whether it be vegetation shift. So grass and rangelands in California are primarily uh, invasive annuals. And a lot of people have talked about potentially shifting to perennials, but we haven't really seen that. So that could be one method. And then on top of that, I'm using a method called fractionation on on the soil samples to determine relative levels of stability of carbon in the soils. So if this grazing is leading to soil carbon, where is that carbon going? Is it staying permanently or is it being re-respired soon and it shouldn't be counted as a mitigation strategy? And so that's where I'm heading next and there will be at least a year's worth of lab work. And I also should mention that in addition to that, prior to choosing the ranches, I had interviewed 20 plus ranchers across the state. And so I'm hoping to also build a study looking at, you know, drivers behind ranchers adoption of AMP grazing, barriers to it, and what their information networks look like. And all of that is to build kind of a more social analysis on why people are using it, what continues to make them choose to use it, and then why don't some people use it. That way, depending on what we find in the soil study, we can use that to really drive policy from our findings. 
Can you tell us anything anecdotally on that right now about, you know, high level for these ranchers, at least what seems to be driving adoption versus maybe what surprisingly doesn't seem to be driving adoption? Yeah. And I actually just last Tuesday, a paper came out that I was co-author on, lead author was Hannah Gosnell on some of the drivers behind this from interviews that she had done in Australia and in the Western US. It's interesting, but unsurprising that climate change is not the driver of ranchers adopting these practices, right? Like they're not driven to completely change their management because they want to save the environment. Ironically, as an outcome, they kind of are, you know, a lot of them are leading to carbon sequestration. And I won't say that yet about the California ranchers, but they have a whole host of reasons behind why. And, you know, it doesn't fit neatly into one category. Some are driven by being on the brink of debt. An example could be Gabe Brown. He's very indicative of that kind of, you know, make it or break it kind of thing. And their business as usual model wasn't working. And so they decided to make this shift and came to it by way of that. You know, I think there's so many factors that play in. I had thought originally that younger ranchers might be more interested in this type of thing. And I don't think that's true. It's interesting that very few ranchers that use regenerative grazing or amp grazing, in my mind, have done it as a shift away from more conventional grazing. That's actually less common than people already having this mindset of sustainability and paying attention to their environment. And then coming into that grazing system already using that amp grazing, which is also different than what I expected. But I think another subset have a different way of, of viewing risk and in that way are reducing the use of inputs and then that's driving them to use amp grazing. I, I don't know. I think there's a whole host of reasons. And then I think, how can we capitalize on what we now know that they're not doing it all for the same reason? to drive more people to do it if we find that it is doing good things for the environment. And I think that's still going to require some investigation. Right. I mean, then that's essentially at the, the heart of the work you are doing with these 1500 data points across these uh, amp grazers across the state. W what's the control in your experiment? What's, you know, what are we comparing this to? Yeah, it's a good question. So this type of study is something called a space for time comparison. It's also very similar to chrono sequence studies. For example, rather than having a control, you control for a certain baseline level of variability. So that means that if I find a ranch pair, for example, where on one side of the fence, they're using amp grazing, and on the other side, they're using business as usual. They have to be on the same soil type. I have to know what their grazing has looked like for a certain amount of number of years. I need to make sure that they haven't been applying hay or compost or any other input that could drive differences in carbon aside from just the animals themselves. So it's a different way of thinking about ecological science. It has been used often when, for example, you don't have baseline data, which is very true of these ranches across the state. So there isn't one to get at the short of it, but I've really done my best to try and control for all of the variability that I could possibly think of. And in that way, I have a higher chance of picking up on actual differences due to grazing management and being able to tell that difference as opposed to just baseline noise in the data. The fractionation thing is really interesting to me because that is a question I have about regenerative agriculture in general, you know, anywhere, whether you're doing this adaptive multi-paddock grazing or not, which is once you put the carbon in the soil and you can validate that it's in there, how do you make sure that it stays there? And is that, right. I mean, is that at the heart of the question there? 
I do believe it's at the heart of the question. I like to think of fractionation as like, it's riding a thin line between carbon that's available to the broader ecosystem of the soil and to the plants versus carbon that you really want to stay in there and be counted toward climate change mitigation. And it's best to have some of both, right? You don't want all of the carbon completely locked away so that it's not available for plants to grow or for microbes to grow. Like you still need a functioning ecosystem. And so in that way you need carbon cycling. And the other way you wanna make sure that if you're counting this as a climate change mitigation strategy, that that carbon isn't gonna be re-respired as carbon dioxide anytime soon. So there are lots of different ways of fractionating and it's been done in the soil science literature for quite a long time, but I think I, I most closely align with the framework that Francesca Catrufo uses in her lab, which is, um, she's a soil scientist out of Colorado State University and has been working on us with some recent projects regarding amp grazing in the Southeast. But essentially in this framework, in this conceptual framework, there are two different pools of carbon. Um, one pool is called particulate organic matter, and it's carbon that is unprocessed. It has a higher C to N ratio and it's much more labile. So it's running through the ecosystem faster rate. And so this is stuff that's, you know, retaken up by plants and it's not locked away in soils. And then there's a fraction called MAM or mineral associated organic matter. And this is highly stabilized carbon that essentially gets stuck to mineral surfaces in the soil. And that, according to the information that we have right now, looks like the highest degree of stabilization that we can achieve in soils. Because once it's stuck to that mineral surface, microbes can't use it, plants can't use it. Of course, it can, you know, desorb from the surface with changes in pH or things like that. But all else equal, it's going to stay there for, you know, centuries plus. Then there are, you know, intermediate levels of stabilization, like carbon contained in aggregates. Now, aggregates can shift structure on a decadal time frame. So in that way, it's kind of difficult to really understand which carbon is staying where and for how long. Fractionation helps us, but I think it's also important to balance the functioning of that ecosystem. So in that case, like you would want to see lots of MAM if you're really interested in climate change mitigation. And you also want to see lots of POM if you're interested in like forage production, things like that. Hey, what was the palm? I'm sorry, I missed that part. Particulate organic matter. Okay, and that's the one that's bound to the minerals? No, that's or the no? really labile one. Okay, um, okay. Malm, minerally associated organic matter, is the one that's stuck to the minerals. Okay, so this is what strikes me, and, and my understanding of all this stuff is at a very basic level, so I appreciate you breaking it down for me like this. It seems to me that, with that in mind, the type of carbon that a farmer or rancher should be incentivized for climate change to do is is the mineral bound ma'am. or the, the ma'am. That's but right. the type of carbon that builds soil health is not, is the particulate or the type that's going to cycle in and out or very labile form. So it seems like we're talking two different carbons here. It adds a little degree of nuance to the story that I, I'm not used to. Usually it's like, hey, this is good for the soil. It's good for the farmer. It's good for the planet. It's good for everybody. But maybe we're talking two different types of sequestration and help me understand that. It's not two different forms of sequestration. It's just different directions that the carbon can go once it's in the soil. And there's a lot of you know factors inside of the soil that determines where that carbon is going to go, ranging from 
the quality of the carbon input or the quality of the plant litter to the types of microbes that you have to just the soil type in general. You know, if you have a very clayey soil with lots of mineral surfaces, then there's lots of surface area for that mound to form. I can send a paper your way that I think also helps describe some of this, but I think that all carbon in the soil, as much of it as we can put in there, is useful. And some piece of it will be stabilized and some piece of it won't, or it will be put into some intermediate structure like an aggregate. But I want to say that the same management strategies that we talk about as improving soil health, so reducing tillage, cover crops, managed grazing, all of these things, all of those are doing good for palm and malm. For example, I I wouldn't say that no-till leads to more malm or cover crop leads to more palm. It doesn't necessarily work that way. And also, in general, agricultural soils have lost so much carbon that I think that there's plenty of room for palm and malm to increase soil carbon. So the reason I say that is because a lot of people will say like, oh, well, doesn't malm saturate? You know, we talk about carbon saturation or like there being some maximum threshold of storage that soils have to store carbon. And I I think it's an interesting question, but I don't think that that is a reason not to use these practices that we're talking about because from, from my understanding is that we have plenty of storage capacity left. We're not even close. Right. This is a fascinating topic because it's something that I haven't thought enough about, but you know, yes, if the same practices are going to kind of contribute to both and it really doesn't matter. But if we if we getting into really wanting to create a true incentive structure for a farmer, it would be very helpful to be able to measure the ma'am so that you know that, hey, not only are they sequestering carbon, but they're sequestering the type of carbon that's not just going to go back out next year. And then they get paid next year when they sequester the same carbon. Is it possible to measure that consistently, you know, to where we could really understand that at scale, I guess. Yeah, it's certainly possible. But I will say that fractionation methods are tedious and expensive. And I mean, this is just along the same line as all as all carbon analyses go, right? Like, I I think the first question we have to answer is, can we monitor and verify soil carbon on farms and ranches where we're, we're paying for it? And yes, we can. Do we have the money and the willpower to do it at the scale that we need to verify carbon levels on every ranch or farm? The answer to that, I think, is no. We have the scientific methods to do it. I don't think we have the money and the bureaucracy to do it. I think that we have a lot of work left ahead of us on uh, monitoring and understanding regional specificity as far as where do these practices work? Under what conditions do they work? How does that differ between regions? How do we pay for those things differently? And I have hope that that data feeding into a model will help move things along and will alleviate some of that monitoring and verification barriers that we're facing right now. Well, I get the impression from you, it's not so much about the label of regenerative as much as it is the concept and and the, the principles behind the concept. But I think it's pretty safe to say that the label regenerative agriculture has been a boost for the concept so that people could start referring it as something. Do you think of regenerative as a philosophy where you kind of either 
believe in prioritizing soil, which is maybe how I'll sum up the philosophy or not? Or do you think it's more of a journey that maybe doesn't have a destination where somebody like Gabe Brown is further along the journey than somebody just starting out? And maybe you could be more regenerative or less regenerative. And so I'm just curious kind of how you think about it, or maybe neither. You tell me. I think both. You know, a lot of a lot of skeptics of regenerative will be like, you know, well, what actually is that? Is it organic or is this? And I think it's kind of all of it, right? Like the original principles of organic are certainly embedded in regenerative, but it's more philosophical, right? And so it's rebuilding soil carbon and soil health. It's, you know, stewarding the land and Regeneration International has like all of the key principles listed on their website. But I also think that regeneration is a process, right? And so when we're thinking about what does regenerative agriculture look like, one key facet to me is the level of experimentation that's happening on any farmer ranch. It's an iterative process by which farmers and ranchers try practices and they see what works. Uh, what doesn't work, they try to change it. And this is a learning process over time. And so I like to think it as more of a process than a destination. And so in that way, I kind of think both buckets of what you said are true. Right. First of all, I, I love when I get to spend time with a farmer that thinks that way in terms of experimentation, when they're just like thinking about what can I try next and what results did I get last year and what am I going to tweak? It's such an engaging dialogue. We spend a lot of time on that on on another podcast on soil sense podcast trying to find growers like that because it's so interesting um, yeah i listened to i listened to soil sense it's a great podcast well thank you i'm glad to hear, yeah. I'm glad to hear that i can't take yeah. much credit for it at all other than just being the one who gets to talk but yeah it, it's a lot of fun one thing that strikes me though is a lot of those farmers if i ask the question do you consider yourself a regenerative farmer i'll typically get either a no or a not yet. And so there seems to be this really like vague, ambiguous line of like, when am I a regenerative farmer? And maybe that's okay if it is just like a journey and a philosophy, but where that might be problematic is trying to kind of scale what we're calling regenerative agriculture. The only people who think they're regenerative are like the people who are kind of treated as a religion. And, and maybe that's not fair, but you know, I think other it's fair. people are just more interested. <laughs> yeah, they're interested in what experiments are working on their farm. And so they don't. Right. Is that a challenge to scaling regenerative agriculture, I guess, is where the question is and all that? Um, I don't know. Actually, to an extent, I think, yeah, it, it's a challenge because our lack of ability to identify farmers and ranchers who are doing it because, you know, there's no single term by which they identify themselves. That's a challenge because I've spoken to some ranchers who just have a trove of knowledge. And it's like no one had ever thought to ask them about what they do and why they do it. And in some cases, there are certainly ranchers who I would consider to embody regenerative philosophies, but would never call themselves regenerative. And none, actually not a single one of the ranchers I've ever interviewed has called themselves that or has used the terminology that we use like amp grazing. And at the root of it, I don't think it matters. Like, I don't think that they need to call themselves that in order to be doing the right thing. But I do think that the lack of unity in what we are calling it is a barrier. Yeah. 
Yeah, and here's where else I see it. I see it in politics and in the media when people stand up with loud loudspeakers and say, well, we could solve all the world's problems if if farmers were to adopt regenerative practices or they were to be regenerative. And of course, the people saying that generally have no idea. And so, you, you know, I would love to ask them like, well, okay, what's the line between regenerative and not? Because some of these farmers I talked to you on, you know, Soil Sense, for example, it's like, you know, they are as regenerative as it comes. I mean, you got people who've been in no-till since the 1970s and have experimented with cover crops and doing bio-strip till, all sorts of crazy stuff. It's extremely what I would call regenerative because I, I do believe, although they're not validating it with data, that they're probably building soil health and, and sequestering carbon, which I would say has to be the metric at the root of how far along that journey you are. So anyway, that's where I see kind of a barrier. It's like so easy to say. I, in fact, I read an article that I scoffed at and i think i did a snarky tweet about it's like well yeah if if farmers would it was some of the effective if farmers would just adopt regenerative practices and it's not that hard then you know we would have x y and z anyway that's where i see the barrier and i'll get off my soapbox here do you see that and i i don't know where it goes from here i know we're a little bit off topic but i'm just curious no i think that you're right and it's not an observation that uh, many people are willing to talk about and something i tiptoe around pretty often because Within the regenerative ag community, there's certainly a group of folks who has taken it to, you know, the evangelical religious type. And I find that problematic and kind of counter to the movement. But I don't know, you know, when I think about how do we define regenerative ag, I come back to outcomes. Can we measure the improvement that they're making? But then if we break that down even more, then you could be improving carbon stocks and not be regenerative at all. If you want to throw all the fertilizer and compost in the world on it, you'll probably increase carbon stocks. But does that align with the broader philosophies of regenerative? I think no. So I I think for that reason, that's why the boundaries of regenerative ag have remained pretty murky. Uh, And I also think that that's necessary because if I think about it in my own work, AMP grazing, also called holistic plant grazing, holistic management, whatever, there's not a predetermined amount of paddocks or rest time or stock density or and all of that is fluid. So when people ask me like, what is AMP grazing? I have to tell them the principles and kind of the minimum and maximum boundaries, all of which you know kind of encompass what I'm talking about. And that was also a challenge to this work that I'm doing because when I was trying to go around California and identify AMP grazers, like what does that mean? Who qualifies and who doesn't? What barrier do they have to meet in order to be an AMP grazer? I can't say more than eight paddocks. I can't say more or less than 30 days of rest. It had to be a little more abstract than that. And I'm I'm actually quite happy with the criteria that I came up with, but I think that that's pretty indicative of the entire gamut of regenerative ag. Mm-hmm. And is that a limitation of science to be able to g- evaluate a holistic system? Oh, absolutely. This is one of my favorite things to talk about because people hit me all the time with data like, oh, well, this study shows that you know rotational grazing didn't do anything for carbon stocks. And I'm like, I mean, I could talk to you all day about why rotational doesn't mean shit. So yes, I think that's absolutely true. You know, part of it is the funding to study those types of systems isn't there. There was a paper that came out by Marcia Delange, uh, Liz Carlisle, and Albie Miles in 2016 showing like where the bulk of USDA research funding goes and it's toward projects looking at how to improve efficiency. So yield and animal production. And then the higher level of diversity, or, you know, if you think of diversity along a gradient at the most extreme end of a diversified farming system, 
those studies received by far the least amount of USDA research funding. Not surprising, but the other part of it is those systems are more difficult to study. You hit the nail on the head and asking what the control on my study was. And I guarantee that that will be a challenge when I face peer review. I mean, I have lots of reasons why I think it's a justified study design, but it's a departure from the way that we've done agronomic and even ecological studies up until this point. So it requires some concessions with that in mind. And not only was there, you know, not a control, but also like, you know, the variability between what we consider amp grazing. So it's a whole host of things that I think uh, help us understand why the science is lacking as opposed to what farmers and ranchers are telling us is the outcomes they're getting. That's really interesting. Other than the obvious, the funding thing is is a big concern, but just in, in terms of scientific approach, are there any advancements, any recent advancements to help us more scientifically evaluate holistic systems, whether we're talking about regenerative ag or anything, where there are so many dynamics at play? I, I think that's an interesting topic. Yeah, I think totally. I have been really amazed by scientists now moving into studying things on farm or on ranch, rather than trying to replicate those systems in a block study design at an agricultural research station. That's for a couple of reasons. One is that I think if you want to really pick up on the dynamics of what's happening on a farm or ranch, you need to be doing it at the scale that is representative of that system. And doing it on a one hectare block replicated 10 times is just, you're not going to get the same type of even grazing behavior. So picking up on scale, but also like, to me, what's important to understand, I think, you know, now that I've, I've been hearing all of these things from farmers and ranchers about the outcomes they're getting of their management, I think it's incumbent upon us in the sciences to understand how to evaluate those systems and to ground truth what the farmers and ranchers are saying, rather than taking it into our own systems and trying to apply that management with our limited knowledge on how they do things. And so the shift from replicated block design from going out on farms and ranches and actually collecting data and trying to make sense of what's happening is hopeful in my mind. Where do you hope all this goes for you? I mean, what's what's next for you? Do you think that the question that is driving your PhD is the question you hope sort of drives your life's work? Or are you thinking about it that broadly? Oh, I'm thinking about it that broadly. <laughs> I am. Um, <laughs> Yes, is the answer. But, you know, there's so many aspects to this that I would just love to dig my hands into that I haven't gotten to yet. Soil carbon is at the heart of it and kind of drives a lot of what I do. But these interviews with ranchers, I've just been so intrigued by. And so I can imagine lots of different studies to come out of trying to understand more about the drivers behind farmer and rancher decision making. And the role that economics play in their level of risk that they're willing to accept. Honestly, ultimately, what I'm most interested in how to make policy shift, you know, how, how do we redesign farm bill programs to better support farmers and ranchers and to sim- simultaneously get the ecological outcomes that we want while trying to rebuild some of this rural viability that I think is at the heart of what we're losing in our agricultural systems. Has there been any research on that? Because I did another episode with somebody talking about, oh, well, you know, what nobody's talking about with regenerative ag is what it could do to rural communities. Mm. And I think I understand that in concept, but what validation of that do we really have that that actually will happen? I'm not sure that I would say it will happen, but I think things that I'm starting to pick up on, like now that I have a taste of all of these different 
aspects of regenerative ag, I'm starting to put things together in a way that feel like they're making sense. Like, for example, in the paper that I mentioned earlier that I that just came out last Tuesday with Hannah Gosnell from Oregon, where we were looking at the drivers behind regenerative ranching. And what we heard from a lot of ranchers was that they have reduced their input need, but also that the way that they're learning is through networks with other farmers and ranchers. And then if we think about, for example, like the La Via Campesina movement in South America, I'm feeling a lot of parallels between those systems. And so I think I'm just kind of scratching off the surface of something that I think could be really big, which is connecting farmers and ranchers to one another to learn from one another rather than, you know, us in the ivory tower handing down these recommendations that have limited potential for them, but also are a high cost and the kind of the legacy of the land grant university. And so I think it has a lot of potential for helping us reimagine the connection between research and data collection and peer-to-peer learning networks among farmers and ranchers and the land grant system. And then what that means for driving policy change as well. Like, are we talking about voluntary programs? Are we talking about price incentives? What could be the best case scenario, like I mentioned earlier, to get these practices and the carbon outcomes, as well as supporting farmers and ranchers in their communities so that we're not paying them for ad hoc practices, but we are helping them live lives so that they are also able to to focus a lot more on their ecosystems. Yeah, it makes sense. So literally what is happening when we're sequestering carbon? Redirect me where I'm off. Gas is exchanged at the leaf and carbon dioxide enters the plant and then is kind of exited through the roots. Is that right? Yeah, that's certainly one mechanism. There's there's a few different ways. When we're talking about grazing specifically, plants accept carbon dioxide through their stromata that carbon gets used in different places of the plant. They use some of it to build their biomass above ground. So the leaves and and shoots that you see above ground, and then some of it enters their roots. Some of the carbon in the roots gets exchanged with fungi. Some of it gets exchanged with microbes. The roots themselves are made up of really high quality carbon. And so that's one way, right? The roots uh, release exudates in the form of carbohydrates. And so that carbon enters the soil. But then also once the plant dies, all of that litter that was above ground gets laid down onto the soil surface. And that becomes part of the underground carbon cycle as things like soil bugs, you know, worms, dung beetles, that kind of thing. They utilize carbon as well as microbes and fungi. The other way is when cattle are grazing, they consume some of that above ground biomass and they convert some of it to grow themselves, to build biomass, to make beef, what we eat. And some of it enters as manure. And what's coming at the back end is actually a higher quality carbon input because it's got a lower carbon to nitrogen ratio. So that's a lot yummier of a version of carbon than a lot of other things. So there's some you know, competing mechanisms by which carbon can enter the soil. Yeah. Got to be careful with the using the words yummy and manure in the same sentence. It's <laughs> <laughs> true, true. I quite right, well, like the smell of cow manure, but a lot of people <laughs> disagree with me. <laughs> I can't imagine. Uh, but yeah. no, very cool. Paige, I love this. I knew I would, and it, it surpassed expectations. Anything you were really hoping to talk about that we didn't get a chance to? No, I think I think you really hit the nail on the head. And we got into stuff that I absolutely love to talk about, especially on like, you know, barriers to the science on this and what yeah. farmers and ranchers are saying. So this has been great. 
Well, thank you again to Paige Stanley for being on the show. I hope you all found that as fascinating as I did. What are your thoughts on regenerative agriculture and its future potential? I thought it was interesting that she mentioned that many of these regenerative grazers she's working with are new to ranching rather than conventional ranchers just trying maybe new techniques. I think there's something to this that's both a challenge and an opportunity for regenerative agriculture. On one hand, I think it opens up doors for new people to get into production ag, and obviously she's seeing that. Conversely, it may be difficult to get established producers eager to convert in many ways. Uh, anyways, just my two cents there. I'd love to hear yours either via Twitter. I'm at Tim Hamrich, or you can join our community over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. As always, I appreciate your time and attention. I really don't take it for granted. We'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Oh, 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 o